I'm going to have to bet on heart rate versus pace. Um, you know, heart rate is always the physiological limiter that we can lean on. The Triathlon Show 210. up everybody and welcome back to another episode of that triathlon show the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com i'm your host michael and on today's episode i interview coach andrew simmons on all things altitude including going to altitude for a training camp going to altitude to do a race and even living at altitude and any considerations that you might make based on where you are located in the world including for example colorado where andrew himself is located we'll get right into the interview after thanking our sponsors First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. And as we talk about in the interview, hydration is one key component that you need to be really mindful of at altitude. And that includes uh, your fluid intake, but also your electrolyte replenishment and uh, most importantly, sodium. So that is something that is uh, very much worth considering when you're, whether you're going to race or to go to train at to altitude what is your sweat loss but also what is your sweat sodium content precision hydration has plenty of resources to help you figure that out and understand how it works i can recommend listening to episode 49 of that triathlon show where i interview founder andy blow on these topics or you can check their website precisionhydration.com and get a free hydration plan based on your individual information you can also get your first box or tube of electrolytes for free with the promo code that's triathlon show all on word all caps. And a big thank you to Roca that you can find on roca.com. If you're looking for some great great Christmas gifts for your triathlon family members or friends or loved ones, Roca is a great place to start looking. They carry a wide range of triathlon product all of uh, top of class quality level but uh, there are different price levels depending on what your christmas gift budget is you might go for a pair of roca r1 goggles on uh, the cheap end of things those are still super super impressive goggles i love them i don't use any other goggles than them but i do use them in multiple different uh, lenses and colors uh, and you can go all the way up to something like the Roca Maverick X wetsuit, which is the flagship wetsuit. That being said, even their entry-level wetsuits are super, super good quality. They have the famous arms-up technology, and they have really good flotation and other attributes for a wetsuit. So even with the entry-level wetsuits that Roca have, you get a lot of uh, the properties that uh, generally would be reserved for higher-end wetsuits. So check them out on roca.com and get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS. But without any further ado, let's get into the interview with coach Andrew Simmons. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Andrew. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's uh, going to be an exciting topic for sure. I can't believe that in uh, more than 200 interviews, I've never done one on altitude. So I'm excited to get into this topic. But before we do, can you introduce yourself for the listeners? 
Absolutely. Uh, my name is Andrew Simmons. I'm the head running coach at Lifelong Endurance uh, here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, I've been coaching for the better part of a decade, uh, working with uh, both youth and adult athletes uh, and actually working with quite a few athletes uh, locally here uh, that train at altitude. So it's uh, definitely something I have an intimate uh, knowledge of. So excited to kind of share some some thoughts and some history and some fun stuff along with that. Excellent. So uh, let's start with the basics then. What happens really when we are exercising, whether it's, you know, in normal training or if it's in a racing situation, what, what is different compared to doing it at sea level? Why is it such a big deal? Yeah, I think, um, I think the first, the first thing is there's, um, perhaps a little bit of fear around, uh, you know, looking at a race and saying, oh, wow, it's, it's at altitude. And I think that already kind of excludes some people from wanting to train for it because I think there's a lot of mystery uh, around how do we train for altitude if we're not at altitude? You know, how do you train for a race at 2,000 or even 3,000 meters above uh, sea level um, when you live at sea level? Um you know, the, the big thing that happens there um, is there's a hematological response, meaning, uh, you know, what what we're looking for is that at altitude, um, your body has to adapt. If you're coming from sea level, moving up to, to altitude, your body kind of has to play a little bit of catch up. Um, because you're, you're operating with, uh, less available, um, uh, relative oxygen. You're still right enough oxygen in the air that never changes. No, it's not better air at one, uh, or the other sea level versus altitude. Um, but your body, uh, has a certain amount of red blood cells, uh, that exist at sea level. Um, and you're, you have to physically make more red blood cells, increase your RBC count uh, when you go to higher altitudes. And that takes time. And that's really kind of what uh, the adaptation principle looks like. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely some, um, there's a few rules that come along with that, but I think also there's, um, you know, definitely that, that fear of looking at a race and saying, I don't know if I want to do a race at altitude. And I, I hope to kind of squash some of those fears today because uh, you absolutely can train for an altitude race at sea level. That's uh, promising to hear for sure. If we go a little bit more into the, the actual physiology. So we need to produce more red blood cells and increase the RBC, the red blood cell count. But, mm -hmm. uh, but why why is it that we that we can't take up because there is as you said enough absolute enough oxygen in absolute terms in in the air at altitude as well but why why aren't we why do we need have this need for more red blood cells and why are we getting less oxygen than we we're doing at sea level great question um i'll actually um take a take a page out of uh 1990s 1980s era cycling uh, when we first saw uh, people blood doping, um, and I think this will kind of help explain uh, a little bit, even though it's a, a bit of a caustic topic, um, what a lot of athletes used to do blood doping wise was uh, they would actually take their blood uh, after an altitude training stint because you're, when you go to altitude and you've adapted, you increase your red blood cell count because it's actually the, uh, your red blood cells are the ones that are taking in oxygen, uh, and helping you process that. So when you don't, um, sorry, uh, when, when you, when you go to altitude, you have to, uh, absorb, uh, 
more oxygen because uh, there's less of it physically in uh, the atmosphere. And so you create more red blood cells to make up for the lack of uh, relative oxygen uh, O2 that's that's in the, uh, the environment there. So when you've created more and then you move back down to sea level, um, you lose that. Uh, your body basically kind of reabsorbs. It always wants to maintain a certain balance. It wants to find its homeostasis. So when you move to altitude, create more red, red blood cells so that you can operate um, physiologically, uh, you know, perform better. Uh, and then when you move down to uh, sea level, you're able to uh, utilize those that increased red blood cell for a certain amount of time. So there's a relative period of time where doing a, uh, an altitude training stint, uh, and then you leave and go back down, you're still carrying those red blood cells with you. They don't vanish overnight. There's a period of time. Um, and this is why we do altitude training stints with high-performance athletes is we, we want to create that. So when we look back at the 80s and 90s, what used to happen is people would go through and do uh, a, a training stint. They would take some of that blood. They would spin out all the white blood cells that, that we really didn't need. And then they would actually reinsert, you know, through through an IV uh, that, you know, rich blood cell, those high uh, red blood cell count um, blood, and it would allow them to perform better. They basically did an altitude training stint right then and there in a hotel room clearly illegal. Um, and nor do I endorse doing that, just explaining how it works. And the reason it was very hard to catch, um, historically is because your body goes back to a homeostasis. It's relatively quick. Um, but if you did it two weeks out or three weeks out and you did some testing, you wouldn't see it. You would just see that maybe red blood cells were a little bit high, but that's pretty normal with a long endurance event like, uh, the Tour de France, things like that. So that's kind of where we've seen that both from a uh, doing it for a physiological advantage. And then there's also uh, doing it uh, illegally uh, and doing it almost too much. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, so let's uh, dig into that and uh, the legal side of things with, with having a training camp or uh, spending some time at altitude to get that red blood cell, cell count up and then, going to race with that increased red blood cell count. Can you talk about things like how long do we need to stay at altitude to adapt and uh, and some other, any other aspects that really comes into planning an ideal altitude training camp or just generally staying at altitude to, to get some of these advantages? For sure. Um, so I think one of the the biggest things is that if you're looking at, you know, how long should I spend at altitude to um, before I go to a race uh, versus a training camp, the longer, the better. Um, you know, there's there's a rule I like to use with my with my athletes um, for a hematological adaptation, meaning getting your red blood cells to a point where you can perform at altitude nearly as well as you did at sea level. And the reason I say nearly as well is at some point, um, you, you stop being able to adapt as easily, right? You get much beyond 3000 meters and yes, you can, um, ad adapt to that level, but you won't, it's still going to be very difficult. You're still working with the limiter, which is the amount of oxygen available in the environment. Um, so normally what I say is that, um, the length of full hematological adaptation uh, can really be approximated by multiplying the altitude in kilometers 
um, by 11.4 days is kind of what we've found um, in a number of studies. So for instance, if you're going to be at uh, 4,000 meters, a 13,000 foot uh, race, let's say you're going to go to Pikes Peak, which is in our backyard here in Colorado Springs, you would need 44 days to see a full hematological response. That's a really long training camp, but realistic for an athlete. If you're looking at the Olympics or you're looking at an extremely high level event, um, you know, to go for that 13,000 foot race or even just 3000 meters, maybe 9,000 feet, you start to see that you need about a month to get a full hematological adaptation. Now, is that real? So, so, oh, this, is, so this is the, the scenario where you're racing at altitude. Yeah. But what if you're racing in Tokyo, in the Olympics in Tokyo, and you want to spend time at uh, at altitude leading up to that? What what then, if we, for, for right now, we forget about racing at altitude sure. and we're talking about racing at sea level and we're planning a training camp with that in mind. What What's the duration? How do we think about duration in that context? Yeah, I think, um, you know, anytime that you spend at altitude, uh, you're already gonna, you know, within 24 hours of arriving, um, you know, to altitude, you're going to start seeing some physiological changes. Uh, granted, fully admit, I'm not a physiologist. Um, I'm an endurance coach. So I look at the world from uh, the endurance coaching world. Um, first and foremost is within 24 hours, um, your body is going to start to kind of kick in the fact that it needs to start building red blood cells. Um, so, you know, whether you're at altitude for a day, are you going to see a physiological response and go race the next day down at sea level? It's not quite that simple. I'd say at least a week. If you had a, a solid uh, training camp for a week at altitude, you'll see some benefits. The longer, the better. Um, so I, I really think that altitude uh, needs to be defined. And normally we say um, at least 1,500 meters is considered um altitude training camps of 4,500 feet and above is where your body's going to really start to kind of kick in that increased red blood cell production. The higher you go, um, you know, the, the, the more your body has to produce and kind of go into overdrive. But with that, you also have to know that there's an increased uh, caloric demand, uh, especially, you know, increased carbohydrate intake is necessary. Plus there's a huge need for hydration. Um, you know, hydration goes just beyond, um, you know, m making sure that your, your tissues are hydrated. When we're talking about blood, we want to make sure that our blood stays viscous. The more red blood cells that we get, we actually get thicker blood, um, which was a really big problem. Uh, if we go back to that quick ch uh, chat, uh, chat about, um, you know, using blood doping, their blood would get so thick. It was like pumping maple syrup through your heart versus, you know, blood, which is relatively thin and viscous. Um, and that became really hard on their hearts. And you could see them have some pretty big heart issues down the road. Mm, yeah. So in terms of the, the, the altitude, the specifics, 1500 meters being sort of the minimum is there an established sweet spot for what is the ideal sort of altitude you want to be at if you want to get the, the best of all worlds, so to say? I really, really like altitudes, um, you know, about 2,000 meters, 6,000 feet um, above sea level. Our neighbor to the north, uh, Boulder, which is kind of the triathlon training mecca, um, and for good reason. Um, not only does it have great access to training grounds, it's at the perfect altitude. Um, and it actually allows athletes to live in the hills, 
Um, so, you know, I think one of the, the great questions that comes about is live and train high um, and then live high, train low. They're kind of the two principles that, that are there. Um, you know, if you're going to live in Boulder, Colorado um, or train in Boulder, it's worthwhile to go and live uh, and try to find a training ground and drive down every day to do your training um, at a lower elevation. Um, just because of the fact that you'll adapt, uh, if you're spending 16 hours a day at 8,000 feet, uh, living in Jamestown or any of the other, um, smaller towns that are above Boulder. Um, I'll use an example of, uh, you know, directly here. I have athletes that live in Evergreen, Colorado, which is at about 8,500 feet, but they come and they train at about 5,200 here in Denver, um, right in the foothills. And that's enough of a, of a drop that it's about 12%. Uh, if you think about it, um, if you have 20.9% effective oxygen in the air uh, and you're in Evergreen, you have 15.4. Um, and you go to Boulder or even Denver, you're operating at 17.3. And while that only sounds like a 2% difference, we're working with relative oxygen. And that's actually a 12% change um, between the two percentages. So it's a pretty interesting, you can have 12% more oxygen by, you know, relatively speaking, effective oxygen uh, by moving 3000 feet down, down the hill, as we say here. Um, so you have more to work with and then you go and you've got the red blood cells of living 16 hours a day in Evergreen or in Jamestown or any of these other higher altitude, small towns. So the advantage here is obviously that you can do better quality training when you go down and you can still get those adaptations from just spending the time, a lot of time at higher altitude. Can you explain why getting in that higher quality training is important? Why isn't it the case that if I exert myself just as hard, even if my power is down or my pace is down, I get the same training adaptations? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think it all comes down to um, I mean, heart rate is one thing, um, but you're, you're physically working, um, against a known disadvantage or advantage, depending on how you want to look at it. When you're working with less, uh, effective oxygen, um, you have to build, uh, tissues and muscle, um, that are adapted, uh, to that lower, um, amount of saturated oxygen, um, in the environment. And so your body has to adapt to that. Um, meaning that when you take that altitude adapted athlete and you move them again, we're always looking at moving to a, um, a, a very saturated environment at like sea level. Um, you're going to be able to absorb oxygen faster. You're going to be able to keep a lower relative heart rate. So if you take the same training principles by majority and apply them at altitude, yes, a couple things change, but if you can still see similar adaptations, the adaptation taken down to sea level will be, you know, marketably increased um, by, you know, a, a, there's a pretty measurable percentage of increase moving from one environment to the other. Um, yeah. Yeah. And when you go up to, to start your altitude camp, let's say we're going from sea level and we have, we're planning to do, let's say three weeks or two or three weeks mm -hmm. at some at Boulder, for example, uh, let's say three weeks to just to give us uh, a broad example and uh, we can really optimize things. How, what training should you do when, uh, relatively speaking, during 
during that camp when like how much and what kind of intensity can you do at which points during that training camp great question i think um base training is is actually really really big because um one of the things that we lose um by coming up to altitude especially if you're not living here um is recovery. You're not able to recover quite as well because so much of uh, what recovery looks like uh, deals with our ability to repair our muscles. And we do that with our blood. And so when we're, our body is building more red blood cells um, and we're also training very hard, we've got two things that aren't working towards our recovery success. Um, not to mention that when we move to altitude, um, it's, it's known that sleep becomes a little bit more difficult until we've had a chance to get our body's rhythm back in order, especially if we're also coming from a different time zone. So there's a lot of things that don't work in your advantage in that first week. And so I think the first week of three is probably best spent adapting to how altitude feels and how your body uh, responds to altitude. Um, not everybody responds to altitude well. Um, some people can't handle a you know, 2000 meter increase. Um, and they they have to take a lot of time and they can't train as well that first week. You don't know that until you get there, of course. Um, but then those next two weeks, you can start to increase the intensity. Um, I think that one of the big shocks that people find here is that, um, whether I'm training a marathoner or a triathlete, um, we can't do as much density at race pace. Meaning if you were doing three by 20 minutes on the bike, uh, at altitude or at sea level, uh, and you take that same workout, um, you know, both power numbers or heart rate, um, you're not going to be able to hold that three by 20 minutes at, at altitude, especially if it's a 2000 meter increase. It's, um, you're going to look at, can I maintain that heart rate and put the power numbers out? Or if I'm going to try to maintain my power, it may look like, um, you know, something like four by 15 minutes, six by 10 minutes with increased recovery. Your body really takes a hit coming up here. You can still get density, but you can't, um, you have to change the frequency. Um, so you can still get your 60 minutes at race pace in. It's just, you need more recovery within that because you are still ad adapting, right? You would just start to get your full hematological benefit or adaptation at the end of that training camp. So again, mixing hard training camp along with, um, with moving to altitude, it's a, it's a tricky thing. And I think that the best thing you can do is go in with a plan. I mean, I, I will always say that, you know, working with a coach or having a coached plan to do while you're either on a solo camp or part of a, a broader camp, um, you know, make sure it's, it's to your specific, uh, needs, uh, as an athlete. Uh, I think we can get stuck in, you know, doing someone else's workout and then we're really either, uh, you know, overworked, uh, and then we're not recovering. And it can make it really tough. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And a follow-up on that regarding the frequency of quality workouts. Let's say you're a runner and you're used to doing two or maybe even three hard runs per week. Can you still maintain that once you get into the second and third week of altitude training? Or should you drop down to one slash two? So reduce the, the number of quality workouts you do at altitude given the, the increased recovery needs? I would definitely advise athletes to probably drop down, even if they're in a training camp, um, just from the standpoint that you're working to adapt and 
your ability to recover is diminished, you can really overreach. And yes, spending three weeks at altitude, you will get a certain amount of adaptation. Um, but that recovery, that diminished recovery eventually doesn't pay off. And I always coach with a quality uh, mentality versus a quantity. So if even if I'm only getting two quality sessions in a week, um, but I'm able to get out every single day, that's the quantity that I, I would I would advise athletes to reach for is that while you're at training camp, be doing something every day, even if it's base work um, and know that those workouts are going to be hard. Um, they can be intense, um, but you're not going to be able to get as many in during a single week um, unless you're a very, very quick adapter. Yeah. But in terms of the training volume, so if we're taking a vacation, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we're generally, again, let's say we're a runner, we're training, running seven or eight hours per week normally. And uh, can we immediately when, when we go up to altitude and we suddenly have all day to train, can we immediately increase the volume as we would do in a normal training camp? Or should we be careful with the volume as well, not just the intensity? What's your thoughts, thoughts on that? I think, um, I think volume is okay. Um, intensity, intensity will naturally take a hit. You will find that you'll run right up against a limiter that there's a certain point that you can't reach beyond. Um, and always going out and trying to reach and reach and reach, you'll, you'll get, you'll exhaust yourself before you'll, you'll get the, the, the biggest benefits. So I would definitely encourage that athletes that are there. If you're doing, if you have all the time, you know, make that time base work. Uh, even if it's zone one, zone two, or getting out and going for a long hike and things like that, maybe reaching higher altitudes and things like that is a good use of your time. And then making sure that your run session for that day or your, your largest aerobic session, whether that's on the bike or run, um, is, is a quality one. So you can hit that zone one, zone two every day, make those space, those quality sessions out maybe every other day so that you have a day of recovery, um, in between, because it's already a training camp. So there's already an increased amount of intensity. Yeah. Um, and, uh, if we are in the situation that we're doing this training camp with uh, a specific goal race in mind, when should we plan it in terms in relation to where the race falls should we just go straight to the race and try to race as quickly as possible after the the camp or do, do we need some uh, some days or even weeks between what what are your thoughts on that great question i think um this is a tricky one you know because um you know as an athlete we always want our most confident workouts to be uh right before our race um you know those peak weeks uh you know usually come right before taper and if we're doing those peak weeks uh at altitude mentally it can be really hard because you may not be putting out uh the same wattage um or the same pace um and then you have to really trust your fitness and know that there's uh, increased fitness before you head into a race so the number uh is usually 4 to 8 days after a training camp, more if it's an intense training stint, um, less if you're just spending time at altitude uh, and you've done the majority of your training and you're spending a week to 10 days at altitude before you go down and getting us just enough of a, of a bump in red blood cells, you'd push that closer to four days. If you've had an intense time, you want the recovery leading into your taper um, and some time there to be able to see 
that those power numbers are coming back, that you're feeling more fit and you're, you've had a chance to recover from uh, a heavy load. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. So now let's move into the scenario where we are actually racing at altitude. So maybe you can jump right back into the numbers that you presented there with uh, how long you would need to adapt to a specific altitude if you are going to be uh, spending that, uh, th- those last few weeks at the location of the race and then we can after that discuss what to do if you are not able to go to altitude much in advance yeah i think if you've got um if you have the time to be there if it's your your big a race the more time you can spend there the better um especially on location for that race um you know training in the areas that are around it of course are both mentally and physiologically um good for you. Um, you know, you'll, you'll know the surroundings very well. Um, especially the race course, you'll know how hard that climb is and what your red zone really looks like. Um, I think when it comes to racing, the biggest thing is knowing, uh, relatively, um, quote unquote, your relative disadvantage, you know, setting, uh, a marker for what your red zone is or where your limiter is. If you're normally at a threshold of 160 beats per minute, or your threshold is 220 Watts on the bike. Um, and you know, you're going to a certain altitude, um, work with your coach or even using something like best bike split or any of those other, uh, softwares out there to see what the, uh, what that course looks like and the demands of that course and seeing there's probably going to be a 10 to 15%, uh, loss. Um, so, you know, making sure that your threshold, uh, may now be 150 beats per minute, uh, before you really start to become very taxed and that, that threshold may change, um, or your, your wattage that you're outputting to hit that threshold will be reduced, uh, by that factor of 10 to 12 to 15%, depending on, um, out the altitude that you're at. And so knowing where those limiters are and making sure that you have those in your head and you've worked out your, you know, your, your splits with, with your coach, you know, if you're going to go and do uh, a marathon at altitude, knowing, you know, what, what your goal is, um, you're probably not going to get a, you know, a PR, uh, <laughs> in a marathon at altitude, um, as compared to what you'd be able to do at sea level. Um, you can see a very similar uh, benefit if you've had enough time um, at altitude. Again, it all comes down to timing. The more, the better, uh, especially if you're looking for a peak performance. Um, But they've done some really interesting studies and there's a really good podcast. um, uh, Science of Ultra did actually that looks at uh, the timing of uh, when you need to get to altitude Um, and even as little time as getting there 24 hours beforehand, um, your body doesn't have time to really catch up. Um, and it kind of has to adapt at the snap of a finger. Um, and you have to be able to manage yourself and you'll kind of be working with the same zones that you'd be working with at, um, at sea level. It's a pretty interesting, um, uh, I guess, effect that getting there 24 hours beforehand, you either have to get there just before the race starts um, 
and let your body adapt while it's on course. Um, and you're going to be working against your mental, uh, limiters and knowing how hard is hard, um, versus utilizing your watch metrics and things like that. So if you're a very internally motivated and self-limiting athlete that you know what your limit is, you'll be totally fine to go to altitude. Granted, I will say with that said, as long as you know that you're an altitude adapter, don't go to, you know, 3000, 4000 meters above sea level, uh, and, and wonder why you're dealing with, uh, the effects of altitude sickness and things like that. So of course there's a breakover, um, going too high. You know, if you come in the night, the night before the Leadville 100, you ain't going to feel it. You know, it's definitely not gonna, um, not be great, but if you can get there a week before and do some workouts and things, there's the mental benefit. Um, but we're going to need at least two to three weeks to, uh, get there again for a peak performance, if not longer. And I guess the 24 hour hours before a discussion, it, uh, it comes down to the fact that if you are spending any more than 24 hours, those first few days when the body is working really, really hard to adapt, it's actually just breaking down your ability mm-hmm. to perform more so than right. when you've just arrived. And that's why it's not as if you can perform like at sea level if you arrive just before the race, but you're just right. limiting your losses or so, so to say when compared to arriving three or four days before the race, when you are in the, in the deepest uh, spot exactly. that you'll ever be before the body starts to, to readjust again and, and building uh, back and adapting to that altitude. For sure. I think one of the big, so that first 24 hours, your body hasn't caught up yet. It's, it's kind of, um, you know, our, our internal, uh, you know, immediately when we arrive, our body starts to kind of get a hold of it. And it, it's kind of, it's very cautious. You know, our body is kind of the unassuming. It's like, are we staying here? Is this, should I start adapting? Okay. I think I, okay. Yep. We're going to start to produce more red blood cells. Um, and, and that effect that first 24 hours. So you look at someone that's going to arrive before a hundred mile race. That's a 24 hour race. They're going to be feeling it at the end of that race pretty heavily. The body is really going to be taking a lot of damage. Um, both from the distance and also the time it's spent at altitude. I think if I was to tell anybody, um, what would you change uh, in terms of going to a race? What what else needs to change besides, um, you know, your, your race plan, um, your calories? Holy smokes, you have to eat a lot more and you have to hydrate significantly more. One, most of the time when you go to an altitude environment, you're going to a um, – a lower relative humidity environment. So if you're coming from highly saturated, highly humid environment, um, if we said Florida, which is about as sea level as it gets here in the United States, um, to Colorado at 3000 meters, um, one, there's just more air in the air (laughs) in Florida. There's more air there, if you will. Um, but it's also very humid and your sweat will stay on you. You'll soak a t-shirt in the first three miles of a run. You come to altitude, um, and that high, you know, you're, you're losing it to the atmosphere much more quickly. It's not staying on you. And so you don't even realize sometimes that you're, you're becoming dehydrated, which is really dangerous. Um, couple that with increased red blood cell counts. Um, you know, dehydration is one of the biggest problems that we see and one of the biggest race limiters, uh, that we see with athletes out here. So if you're a heavy sweater, um, and you coming to altitude, 
you have to be super, super understanding of what your body needs in terms of hydration, because you really don't want to get dehydrated, um, at altitude. It is not a pretty thing. It really starts to shut down a lot of the, uh, performance side of, uh, of your body physiologically. The calorie thing is just because your body is, uh, it has to work harder at altitude because of lower relative oxygen. But also if we're in that building red blood cells, uh, part of the adaptation cycle, um, your body just needs more fuel to do that work. It's operating on overtime. So you got to feed it overtime. So those are the first two things I really try to tell athletes when they come here is eat more and drink more than you're used to. And uh, do you need to adjust your calorie intake during a race if you're doing, or is it more so if you're co coming out to a training camp because you have the general adaptation going on 24 seven, uh, but uh, is there a difference when you're actually performing in a race compared to at sea level? Yeah, I think so. And I think, um, you know, and, and again, this is, uh, you know, merely just working with athletes here locally is that if I have an athlete that's on a, uh, low carb, high fat diet, um, it can become a little tricky because carbohydrates become a bigger part of the picture when we move to altitude. Um, just because it is a, um, it's just a required fuel source. Um, as, as you move up in altitude, um, carbs become something that we, we, our bodies begin to crave as we start to build those red blood cells. They're a building block of that. Um, and so, it can throw off, uh, fueling plans a little bit here. So I would definitely make sure that if you're, if you're going to altitude that you have a fueling plan, um, that allows for, you know, 10 to 12% more carbohydrates than you've worked with in the past, which doesn't sound like a lot until you look at Ironman, you look at marathons, you look at ultra marathons and it becomes a significant increase in calories, um, per hour. Um, you're moving from, you know, a, a place of relative comfort at sea level too. Now you're starting to kind of push some limits here. So the, the hydration and nutrition strategies are definitely unique uh, at altitude. Yeah. It's not just having to train, having to plan for that, but actually having to train for it as well to, to be sure that you, you can handle it. Exactly. So that's an added challenge in terms of, you already mentioned uh, quite a bit about pacing at when you're racing at altitude, so, but can you go into that? Like if you are making a race plan for an athlete that's coming from sea level and normally races at sea level and they're coming to do a race in Colorado, for example, do you recommend that they would use on the run, for example, would you recommend going by heart rate or pace? Let's say that it's a road race, mm -hmm. a marathon or something. Sure. Or what, what is the strategy that you would you would tell them to follow and how much would you tell them to adjust their, their typical output? Excellent. Um I think when it comes to strictly uh, running, so just one sport, um, I'm going to have to bet on heart rate versus pace. Um, you know, heart rate is always the physiological limiter that we can lean on. Um, when you go to pace, it can be really deflating um, to look at your altitude pace versus your sea level pace. And I think there's a certain mental... Um, mental part of, of that, that when you see that your pace, you're not hitting your pace or you're having to push really hard to hit your, your pace. Um, it, it really kind of has a trickle down effect versus saying, okay, I'm going to hit, you know, 160 beats per minute and I'm going to stay there. Yeah. 
regardless of what my pace is, because that's my limit. Um, that is going to be our biggest limiter. That's going to tell us right away. Um, because one of the big things that we see as soon as you come to altitude is your resting heart rate's going to go up, right? Because you're, your body's starting to work in it overtime. So heart rate is, is the best telltale, uh, sign for us to use, um, for, you know, for the marathon. So I would say, you know, start off your race at this heart rate, um, and then increase to this in the latter half. Um, and I think this also takes a turn into training. If I'm working with an altitude athlete here, I am going to say to them, instead of having three minutes of rest after a rep, I'm going to tell them to hit a heart rate marker. And that may take two and a half minutes if they're very well adapted Or it could take three and a half to four minutes, depending on the intensity of the interval, until their heart rate gets down. And that's ultimately what we want as we build a a specific athlete for a specific adaptation, a race, um, is making sure that they're actually getting their heart rate down enough so that they're recovered. Recovery is is a huge, huge part of the equation um, at altitude. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good point and a really interesting point. And perhaps you might even uh, have the athletes do something like walk in their recoveries rather than jog. They might might normally do just to to increase the the rate that their heart rate drops. I, I'm not sure. Would would you do something like that? Yeah, I think that that takes um, that's a whole ball of wax around. Um, you know, if you're trying to get them to recover in three minutes and you want to stay to uh, those, those training demands that you've written, that three minutes may need to be a walk versus a jog, like you said. Um, and even then they may still not hit that, that heart rate. So it's really as a coach, you know, and speaking to all the coaches that are listening out there, you know, know the adaptation that you are trying to get from your athlete, know your why and where, you know, working with athletes all over the world, um, whether they're at altitude or they're at sea level, when I sit down and write workouts, I have to physically put myself where is that athlete. If they're at altitude, I'm going to coach and write a workout differently. Like I have to write that workout, um, you know, to hit a certain heart rate marker at altitude, whereas they may hit that really quickly at sea level. And it's more about that three minutes is is what I've written in there uh, for, for a specific reason. Um, and so it's making sure that I know what I'm, what I want out of that athlete and making sure it's a different, I can't give the same workout at sea level that I can at, at altitude and expect the same results. They just, they're, mm. it's not going to, um, it's different five by three minutes at zero elevation versus 3000 meters is going to give me something completely different. It may push them even to a different heart rate zone than it would. Um, so that five by three minutes needs to have a secondary clause to it. Uh, when you're writing for altitude and even at sea level, you should be doing that as a coach is that five by three minutes. If it's at a certain power, is that power the same number at altitude? No heart rate. Yeah, we could do that and say that that heart rate, that's the only time you're really going to see the same physiological benefit. 140 beats per minute is 140 beats per minute. Yeah. So going back to the racing scenario, then if uh, you, so you mentioned that for runners, you would go by heart rate. What about uh, triathlon and cycling where we have power meters? Would you 
then perhaps follow power and use some uh, some uh, adjustment to the target power from sea level or would you prescribe an rpe based approach or heart rate approach or what what would you do then ooh that's a really good question i think um i think it comes with uh that athlete um if they've spent time at altitude before if we're taking the approach that you're you know assembling your bike in Boulder the day before Boulder Ironman, and you've never uh, done a stint at altitude, um, I'm going to tell you to go by uh, your heart rate numbers. If you know what your relative percentage of loss moving from one altitude to another is, then you can start to say, okay, if my normal uh, power for 112 miles is... 250 watts, but at altitude, it's 220. Do that. That's, that's a great marker for you to utilize. Um, if, if you're, you know, so that's really looking at, you know, altitude trained, having that experience versus not having that experience. I will always tell the athlete that is coming from, um, zero to altitude with zero experience prior to use your heart rate as your best marker. Um, because, at certain heart rates is when we see, you know, different levels of lactate. All of that comes with, uh, you know, at, at specific points. Whereas power is not as relative. It is uh, at sea level and we can equate those same graduated levels of performance. Um, but again, it all goes back to what is the thing that's driving it? And that's our heart. Yeah, I think that's very sensible advice also from the perspective that even though we have these power adjustment tables and uh, or even uh, pace tables as well, it's just uh, we have some equations based on scientific studies. What we have to remember is mm -hmm. that those are based on averages of a sample that typically is relatively small and the variance within that sample it can be fairly large. So if you mm -hmm. fall on either one of those ends, you are either going to perhaps burn way too many matches way too soon, or you are going to just completely underpace your uh, your race right. potentially. So so heart rate seems like a much safer bet than to rely on you being right at the middle of the bell curve in, in terms of how you adjust to altitude power-wise. Well, and I think um, you also have to look at what kind of athlete you are. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said that, um, everything is, when we talk about power and tables and things like that, we have boiled that person down to quote unquote average athlete. You know, that average athlete is this height, this weight. Um, and we're assuming, you know, this much body mass and, you know, things like that. Well, what if you fall outside of the bell curve? What if you're, you know, very tall and, you know, slender, or if you're a Clydesdale athlete or an Athena, like you're not going to respond the same way. Uh, but the one thing that is always the limiter is, is heart rate. Um, so, you know, you have to know what you are using to drive your training and stick with that. You can't switch around. And so this is where I, I can't sell coaching enough as a coach, having a coach, even myself going to altitude or going down to sea level and having, um, you know, those tools, uh, having someone to reference against and say, this is the heart rate we're going to stick to. And having that secondary person in there to tell me what I need to be doing is huge. Um, because you're going to, 
drive towards that. Um, I think what I'm really driving at here is having a coach, having a plan, stick to it. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you touched on a very important point there. I'm in the exact same boat. I'm a coach and I have a coach. And, and even if you know, like on in theory, all of these things, the thing that a coach adds to this is to accountability. Like if you have talked mm-hmm. through your race plan and say, well, I am going to stick to this heart rate cap and that's what i know that i can sustain for this duration so i'm going to do that and then it makes you so much more likely to do that than to actually uh, if you are just having that race plan for yourself then chances are that you get to the start line and you feel really good and you think that well maybe i'm having that magical day and so you go by your sea level power numbers instead and uh, and that might end up in in a disaster in uh, not your best performance that you were capable of at least so uh, so i totally agree with that yeah um let's uh, discuss another scenario and that is uh, your specific scenario of living at altitude uh, year round and how does that impact training and racing in general and uh, what are some factors in addition to those we've already mentioned that that you should consider and and also one one question maybe to start us off do you guys living at altitude have uh, an inherent advantage whenever you come down to sea level to race or not yes and no (laughs) um so i think one thing to say and i won't go too much into this is that there are people who adapt to altitude and those who don't um some people are able to come up to altitude and and then go back down to sea level and see a, see a big benefit. Um, and some don't, and I'll kind of leave it at that. That's a whole nother topic and it's really deep into physiology. Um, if I took myself into consideration here, um, and looked at prior marathon training cycles, I by majority, um, race the marathon myself. Um, and so when I'm training, I think the biggest thing is that I, I can't look at workouts the same way, um, you know, hitting race pace up here, you know, if I'm able to hit my marathon race pace continuously for 30 to 40 minutes, I know I'm really in good shape. Whereas at sea level, I could go for an hour, hour and 10 hour 20. Um, but you know, that, that's just not achievable here at altitude, um, both from a, a physiological standpoint and also just energy demand, staying in the right zone, things like that. Um, we start to really break down race pace, those really hard, high efforts into smaller pieces so that they become more manageable because we have to insert rest. Otherwise, blood lactate levels get too high. We start to push outside of the ideal zone that we were trying to stay in. Um, I find that at altitude for myself, um, I raced Chicago marathon this year, less than ideal training cycle, but I know that, uh, from, you know, I've gone down, I think, uh, probably about a dozen times now, 12 different marathons. Um, I can pretty much count on, uh, taking an advantage. Uh, and that's usually in the marathon about 15 seconds a mile, which is pretty significant. Um, so you can also say that your race pace can be 15 seconds slower, um, here at altitude, um, to get the same physiological benefit. It, there is some ways, not that much of a sliding scale. Again, at some point, um, you look at training at 2000 meters versus 3000 meters, there's no way you're going to be able to hit the same 
um, paces and durations at 3000 meters that you could at 2000 versus a thousand and on down. So the higher you go, um, it's not linear. It is, it is much more exponential. You start to get much beyond 3000 meters and it's very difficult to hit your race paces and you have to really put a lot of trust into the amount of work that you're doing and make sure that you really are adjusting your training, um, in a smart way. Again, 3000 meters recovery is long and slow, um, even with an adaptation. So, so if I can um, jump in and summarize yeah. a little bit what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is that you obviously have the advantage that you can, uh, you get the physiological adaptations of making more red blood cells, mm-hmm. but that depends on yep. how strong a responder you are. Some might get more advantages than, than others. But then the disadvantage is that yep. you your training needs to be adjusted. You possibly can't do quite the same amount of, of work. If we look at, for example, um, well, the total power numbers or power times duration type of work that you that you do in a workout. So, yep. so you need to. So, so basically, it becomes a trade off. Like, is the l- slightly less lower training load that you can impose on your body is that compensated by the physiological adaptations of living at altitude, and that can depend on whether you are a responder or not. Is that sort of a good summary of of what you're saying? Yeah, and I think one other thing is is that the event that you're you're working towards consider. Um, if it's a majority aerobic event, right, if uh, the physiological adaptation is by majority aerobic, say the marathon, um, you're you're going to carry a huge advantage. You start to creep down and when we see more um, anaerobic work, we actually see that like athletes that are training for the 5K, unless they're very, very high level athletes um, and really can have a large amount of volume to work with, um, They'll take a large advantage. But one thing that we see a loss of is leg speed. Um, because we have the heart rate limiter where we're going to hit our heart rate very, very, our top end heart rate very, very quickly, we can't sustain high leg speed or high turnover types of intervals um, for as long. You know, whereas an athlete may be able to do four by a K um, and maintain a really, you know, at race pace or below race pace at sea level, that may be 800 meters or 600 meters, depending on the altitude. And so you might add reps to that to try and get that leg speed, but there's nothing quite like being able to work through the fatigue of a high turnover um, type of workout. So same thing for time trialists, depending if it's, you know, under that 40K, if it's a 20K TT, or you're looking at the sprint versus Ironman, you can train for Ironman great here at altitude. Sprint and, you know, Olympic, we start to kind of see that um, while you have an aerobic advantage, uh, you may lose some other things like leg speed um, so that you have to either insert that into and make that a specific part of your training or know that your other aerobic skills will make up for it. Yeah, here's a nugget that I remember now reading in uh, Dina Castor's book uh, from when she was training with uh, um, Joe Veal in uh, Mammoth Lakes. Yeah. And they inserted, she had this problem when going down to some uh, cross-country races, I think, that she didn't feel that she had the leg speed. And what they did was to insert downhill strides. And that helped mm-hmm. her get the leg speed up. And they did that repeatedly day after day, basically, I think, for a while. And and 
you, she could do that obviously because gravity helped her get that leg speed up. She didn't need yeah. the the aerobic component or the oxygen to to produce that leg speed. So, and then that seemed to help her and and have those race performances and be able to put out a strong a strong finish or a strong breakaway in in those cross country races as well. So, so that was something I found really interesting and, and smart from her coach to to do with her. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, Joe V Hill is one of, one of the greats, um, for looking at and finding the opportunity that exists. I will say that, um, you know, before all my altitude athletes that are out here start and say, Oh, I'm going to start going run downhill a lot more ease into it. You know, it's a, um, the muscular demand that's required, uh, is something you have to build up to, to do a lot of downhill, high turnover, high pace running, um, you better have really good mechanics and really good form, which Dina, of course, has, and she's gifted with that. Um, but you can really find yourself in a mess of injuries uh, with a lot of downhill running, especially if you build up your the amount of density and the amount of uh, miles that you're putting in downhill. So start small, know how to run downhill, prevent a lot of braking um, as in your stride, and make sure that you have minimal ground contact time, and that will that that can become um a tool to get higher turnover but ease into it yeah for sure so with the discussion that we've had would there be a case for people living at altitude to at some point in their training cycle insert a camp at sea level to to work on and that might depend on their race like if they have a race with some uh, an anaerobic component as well uh, or because I know, for example, Tim O'Donnell, even though his focus is uh, firmly the Ironman distance, but he chose to do, go down from Boulder to California, I believe, uh, before at least before last year's Ironman World Championships. And maybe because he didn't feel that he was a strong responder to altitude, but he spent a long time at sea level rather than his normal uh, altitude at Boulder. So, so what's your take on that? I think it's... Um... I think there's a mental, physiological, there's a lot of different things that go into making a choice like that. I've found that spending a couple of weeks at sea level, um, you know, I can maintain a higher cadence, a higher heart rate uh, for much longer. And I have to remind myself that I'm not going to explode. You know, I'm like, oh man, I've been at my race pace, my 5K pace for three minutes now. Normally I'd start to, you know, get kind of some, some red flags or start saying, Hey, you know, you got to be smart. Whereas I can push that for another minute or two minutes, um, and, and be okay. Um, and so it's being able to reacquaint yourself with, uh, the feeling of training at that, that different altitude. Um, so I think there's again, a physiological benefit of going down and yes, you get that leg speed turnover, you get that feeling. You also have to work through, is it going to be more of a humid environment? What can't you replicate at altitude for the demands of a race like Kona? So, yep. you know, can you, you can't replicate heat. So you, when you're looking at having the biggest performance of your life, you want to replicate everything you can down to the meal you're going to eat the day before uh, and, and saying that's the meal I'm going to have before my, my longest ride, my longest brick. And, and breaking down to those pieces. And so I can absolutely see why an athlete goes down from altitude to sea level. He's fit. He's already has the fitness. He's not trying to 
get a huge fitness carryover as much as he's trying to go in with mental confidence, but also preparation. There's a different set of demands um, that he needs that he can't get at altitude. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. A couple of other questions that I have here is, uh, first of all, altitude training has traditionally been a big part in high-performance environments. Basically, all endurance athletes or federations of endurance athletes have been taking their athletes to altitude. Do you think that that is uh, that that is that that makes total sense because it is such a potent weapon in their arsenal, and uh, and how important how much are you missing out on as an elite athlete or high performing athlete if you don't go to altitude? It's a great question. We're starting to actually see um, a number of NCAA um, collegiate programs make an altitude camp a bigger part of their budget uh, and a bigger part of the landscape of their training. Now, that said, is it set and setting, you know, having, you know, a little bit more remoteness, you know, building that team aspect, um, or are they actually carrying an advantage? Because as we know, we only carry that altitude advantage, you know, for four to eight days after. You don't see a lot of NCAA programs or collegiate programs, you know, doing an altitude camp in the middle of the, you know, the season to prepare for, you know, Pac-12s or things like that. Um, You see them doing it in the summer. Um, And it's mostly to get higher density, a bigger workload, like what a normal training camp is. Um, You know, they've done some studies. You can carry that advantage for up to two weeks but it really starts to diminish after those eight days. So I, I think to, to answer that question, um, are you at a disadvantage um, if you don't? Um, yes and no. I think it really depends on the landscape of what you're racing in. If you're going to race at altitude and you're not racing or training at altitude, yeah, you're going to carry a, a, a noticeable disadvantage. Um, but if you're, at sea level, training to race at sea level, you'll get a benefit by going to altitude, but it's it's short lived. Yeah, would let's think about the Olympics in 2020. Let's say you're coaching a 10k runner or a marathoner uh, that's going to the Olympics. Do you think that that runner should spend their last uh, a couple of weeks or three weeks or four weeks at altitude and then go down four to eight days before the Olympics, or would it make more sense to actually be preparing? in the heat and humidity of Tokyo. That's a tough one, I know, but just uh, you can speculate. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'll make the assumption that this athlete is an altitude adapter um, and that I've got all the budget in the world. Um, Yeah, it'd be really cool to be able to um, build that athlete um, a training environment that I can replicate the heat and humidity, uh, but work in a lower oxygen saturated environment to kind of sharpen uh, that blade to a, to a nice razor's edge. But I think one of the bigger things that um, when you look at Tokyo specifically is the heat and humidity, it's a huge factor. Um, And actually to speak to those people that are at sea level, the heat and humidity is actually the closest um, the closest you can get to training at altitude. So it's almost, if you took heat, humidity, and altitude, my goodness, you are putting so many demands on the body. Um, 
you may end up giving the body too much to deal with um, and actually uh, putting them into a bigger hole than they need to be for their biggest performance. If I was, you know, training that 10K marathon athlete, I'd put them in Tokyo for a month beforehand. Um, and if anything, maybe getting them out of an environment where they have better air quality. Um, so that's probably going to be the biggest detriment to the, to the marathon is going to be air quality, heat and humidity. Uh, whereas that 10 K runner needs to make sure that they have good leg speed to run a competitive championship style race. Um, and they're going to be most affected by air quality, um, in the stadium, uh, but also the heat and humidity, um, of the 10 K there. So heat and humidity in this case will trump, uh, any advantage that can be taken from altitude yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Another question. What's your take on altitude tents and uh, masks and the likes? I sigh deeply because, um, you know, everybody's in this world to make some money and I don't endorse, uh, I don't endorse these tools. Um, you know, altitude masks, um, they're not really, it feels like altitude. It's the closest thing that will feel like it mentally. So if you're trying to train yourself to mentally what it, it's going to feel like, I guess, then there's a benefit to the altitude mask. But um, all altitude masks really do is restrict your breathing and your airflow. They're not actually creating an adaptation, a physiological adaptation to operate with less oxygen. You, you just are breathing in less air that's still at the same saturation level. You're not changing the saturation. Um, I, I, you, I you get a I really strong... Are, or I know there actually are masks that... Uh, that have Oof. the same partial oxygen pressure as the air oh, and altitude, okay. so you can adjust that. The question then is, like, how does that compare? Like, do you wear that mask like twenty four hours per day right. because that's what you really need to do to replicate staying at altitude? Right. I mean, you, I mean, then you got to wear this huge thing around, and everybody's going to look at you really funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and it's the same same idea with tents, right? You know, you would literally have to be in your bed. 18 plus hours, you'd have to spend at least 50% or more of your time inside that lower oxygen saturated environment. Um, you could make your whole house at that lower level, but there's a lot of time, energy and investment to do that. Um, it just doesn't, I mean, I'm not here to spend anybody else's money. I just, I wouldn't spend my money on that. Um, I I'd work on becoming a building a better engine you know do your workouts <laughs> yeah no i'm not an expert but but i would agree with you for sure and e even if you theoretically you could spend 15 16 hours per day in that altitude tent and, and maybe get i mean that sounds like a miserable existence and i think that the mental drawbacks of that would far 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 outweigh the physiological benefits that yeah well and you know some people ask me oh well Let's put an altitude tent here in, in Denver, and then you can sleep at 14,000 feet or 15 or 16,000 feet. And it's just like your body's not going to adapt that quickly. It's not like one, you know, a week of sleeping at 15,000 feet is going to do any good. If anything, you're going to get really low quality sleep. You're, you're putting yourself in a really um, tough environment. Plus, if anyone's ever used these tents, they're noisy, they're confining they're not a fun place to be um you know you're living in a bubble <laughs> not fun yeah. yeah uh final question before the rapid fire questions if people are interested in going to altitude to train what uh, in your experience and knowledge are some uh, good options 
for locations? Well, I mean, Boulder, Boulder is, is wonderful. You know, if you're looking at it, uh, where do you, where should you go stateside? It's really hard to beat the accommodations of Boulder. There's definitely um, a, a break over there. It can be expensive, um, especially if you're looking at, you know, being here for a significant amount of time. Um, but don't just look at Boulder as options. There's Alamosa, which is actually south of us, which has a great um, high altitude environment, a lot of dirt roads. Um, you know, athletes like Camille Heron, they're in Alamosa. Um, you know, she's a hundred mile world record. She just reset her um, her world uh, record um, at world champs this year. And you'll see her, watch her on social media. She's in Alamosa doing a training stint just before she went to, to world champs. So yes, it's a, it's a real thing. Mammoth Lakes, any of the, the big training grounds, Flagstaff, anywhere that you can get above 2000 meters and still have, um, you know, relative access uh, to bike shops and good restaurants and things like that. You're going to be able to get good quality food, um, find that good balance of, you know, cheap housing, uh, with great access. That's always huge. Um, you know, and depending on what you're trying to specifically do, there's some great stuff in, um, you know, North Carolina. Uh, they've got some amazing, uh, climbing routes out there. The Pacific Northwest even has some great high altitude options. You start to look internationally, um, you know, France, Switzerland, all of those, uh, the Alps hold a lot of great training, but there can be, f- there can, a lot can be found even, uh, in Italy, uh, and around. So I think it's really about knowing what you want out of that training ground, especially if you're trying to replicate, uh, a, a near, uh, a race in the near term. Yeah. For, for Europe, some of the most common options and for good reason are, uh, St. Moritz, uh, Livigno, mm. Sierra Nevada, and uh, Fontremeu are four that come to mind immediately on in on Europe, yeah, on the European continent. So just so the listeners have some some options here as well. But uh, I think that's it for altitude. So let's move into the rapid fire questions and uh, take fifteen seconds or less to answer these. Starting with, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? Wow, that's a great question. I think right now um, I am reading Good to Go. Uh, if it wasn't uh, really obvious, um, I'm really interested in recovery right now and trying to earn, learn a lot more about that. So really loving that book. Otherwise, in terms of resources, um, I'm a big reader. I try to seek out really obscure books to try and learn about. So uh, I just am finishing up Joe V. Hill's book as well. What's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? You know, um, gear or equipment. I actually am really loving, uh, nothing but a great pair of shoes right now. I just, uh, got a new pair of Nike Pegasus trail shoes and I wear the Nike Pegasus for my regular runs. So it's, it's like, I don't have to change shoes. It's really wonderful. Yeah. I also switched to the Pegasus for my normal training shoes and uh, I really like them as well. And uh, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Seeking out, um, criticism from the right people. Um, you know, I was talking with a group this morning, um, and, you know, uh, an author, Brene Brown, uh, talked about, you know, fitting the people that criticism matters on a postage stamp. So those five or six people, um, you know, putting them on, on a, a postage stamp. And those are the people that their opinions really, really matter. The rest are really noise. 
uh, and being able to uh, look at that and say that I'm going to, I want to listen to those people and I achieve success by being willing to take criticism uh, as well as listening to what other people have to say. Yeah, that's a really good one. All right. So uh, if the listeners want to follow you and find out more about you and your coaching, where should they go? And if you have anything that you want to plug, please feel free to do so. Awesome. Well, you can find me on Instagram at coach underscore Simmons runs. Um, and then uh, our business is uh, lifelong endurance. And actually, one of the things that we're going to be releasing um, in early December is actually our curated coaching program. It's actually a subscription based program uh, where athletes can go and get a um, a program that's uh, built around their zones. It's a personalized training program, whether you're just looking to maintain or even build mileage um, in your off season, or you're moving towards a specific event or series of events. We're really creating a program that offers both community and access to a coach uh, without the one-to-one coaching price. Uh, so more to come on that. If you uh, keep your keep your eyes to our Instagram, you'll learn a lot more about that as we're releasing that. Yeah, and we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you, Andrew, for coming on. It was uh, really great to to talk to you and uh, and get your uh, take and uh, practical applications for uh, training, racing, and living at altitude. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. As usual, you can find the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com. So check out all of the things that we discussed there if you are planning to go to altitude to race or you are planning to uh, go for an altitude training camp. I really hope that you will find this a useful resource if you fall in any one of those categories. In the next episode, next Monday, in the next interview, I should say, I interview coach Adam Pulford of Carmichael Training System. And that's an episode I'm really, really excited about. We talk about a lot of uh, general endurance training and planning your training and racing year. Uh, So everybody should listen to that, even though we take a slightly cycling focused perspective there but uh, and that's actually what I meant to do when I started into Adam but then it turns out that the discussion became pretty much something that uh, more about the general philosophy of Adam's training which is a really interesting one I really loved hearing his thoughts on that so I'm excited about that as you can hear go and uh, check it out when it's out next Monday. Stay subscribed to the show and you won't miss it, of course. And you won't miss the Q&As coming out on Thursdays in the meantime either. Also, if you have a moment to rate and review the podcast, if you've been listening for some time and you find value in it, a rating and review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you can rate and review is a great way to show your appreciation and it really makes a massive difference every single review does because it's not easy to get podcast reviews Uh, only a very small percentile of listeners are actually going to go to that length so i really hope that you can do that because it does make a difference in getting the podcast discovered by other people which at the end of the day is what keeps the podcast sustainable and something that i can keep doing at the same rate that i'm doing now with two episodes per week and one thing that obviously helps with that as well and is uh, crucial, uh, essential for the podcast is our sponsors. So big thank you to them. Precision Hydration can be found on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get an individualized hydration plan for your next race and get your first box or tube of electrolytes for free with the promo code TTS, all caps. 
And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. That's R-O-K-A dot com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. And get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.